1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Second episode of the 17th Century Warfare series is brought to you by OnlineGreatBooks.com. If you would like books that are really, really great delivered to your doorstep and the opportunity to talk about them with enthusiasts to nerd out about them with other people who care about these books just as much as you and are as curious about them as you are, then why not join up with a proper business organisation that knows what it's doing when it comes to these great works? Every month, Online Great Books ships a carefully selected edition of one of its great books directly to your home. They begin with Homer and progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare and everything else through to the moderns. With just three one-hour reading sessions every week and a monthly meet-up tutorial with a trained Socratic tutor, you will be able to get the most out of these great books and you'll be happy that you signed up because when Diplomacy Fails is offering you 25% off your first three months. Simply follow the link in the description of this episode below to find your favourite books and to talk about them with people who are just as nerdy as you. Okay, thanks guys and enjoy this latest episode. <laughs> Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to our 30 Years War mini-series on 17th Century Warfare, episode 2. As you can see, we've got a fairly big episode here for you today. Last time in our first episode on 17th Century Warfare, we dropped a lot of knowledge on you guys, so I hope you're still with us. Medieval society transformed through a gradual process, which of course contained its share of exceptions and contradictions and which by no means progressed in an always straightforward arc. We spent a good deal of time focusing on the society which this warfare housed, with the Mounted Knights, feudal obligations, and non-professional but still very effective force, made up of a core group of knights and conscripted peasants. For the record, when developing this miniseries, I asked on When Diplomacy Fails' Twitter, just super casually, by the way, at WDF Podcast if you're interested, whether an account of the English trading the longbow for the musket would be something you'd be interested in, or whether it was just a bit too far from what we're trying to trace here, and just one of too many rabbit holes. The response I got was so overwhelmingly in the camp of freaking do it already, that I feel even more excited about presenting this episode to you than I otherwise would have. It is by necessity a bit long, you could say, and a rather large word count to boot, but considering what we're about to tackle, I don't think you'll mind all that much. Within this episode, obviously enough, we'll be looking at the longbow, giving an account of its value and the kind of training people had to endure before they could become proficient, followed by an explanation of why the musket, after much theorising, came to replace the English favourite of the longbow, and critically, why it took so long for this to happen. If you're ready then, I'm more than ready to get into this. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by OnlineGreatBooks.com, but it's also brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. For episodes like these, ad-free and with the script fully attached to them, make sure you check out When Diplomacy Fails' Patreon page by going to patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails. If you're interested in When Diplomacy Fails and you, you like what we do here, then Patreon is the best way by far to support us monetarily. So many of you guys have already subscribed and I really appreciate all your monetary assistance. So thanks for all you've done so far and hey, if you haven't signed up yet, now is the best time to do it. Until then though guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode and enjoy. In 1545, a noted humanist and scholar, Roger Asham, wrote, Toxophilus, or Lover of the Bow, wherein a proponent of the longbow argued about its benefits to a sceptic. For the sake of national defence and for personal development, the longbow was essential, yet Aisham was concerned that, in the mid-16th century, the use and practice of the longbow was in steep decline. He was far from the only person to think so. Nearly 200 years before, in 1363, The first of what would prove to be a succession of ordinances were issued, which commanded that on their day of rest, or rare holidays, Englishmen should not engage in such wasteful pursuits as football, dice, or tennis, but in practising their archery skills. In the mid-1400s, English political writers were writing that, By law, every man should be compelled to hone their skills in archery from an early age, and should never relinquish these skills for any reason. National defence, it was said, depended upon a pool of men proficient in the longbow. A key source for this episode, the suitably named Stephen Gunn, wrote on the widespread idea of the longbow in early English society during the 15th and 16th centuries, saying, Henry Seventh and Henry Eighth defended the longbow with statutes banning the possession of crossbows and handguns by the lower orders. They promoted it with further statutes, ordering every housemaker to keep bows not only for himself, but for his servants and children, and commanding every adult and adolescent male to use them. Henry VIII, ruling as he did between 1509-47, to when technological innovation was gathering apace, was keenly aware of the threat posed by a reduction in longbow proficiency. It was immensely difficult for Henry, or for any of his peers, to imagine that Englishmen could be equally proficient in any other weapon, or that any other weapon, be it a crossbow or the rudimentary arquebus, the smaller form of the larger, heavier musket that would dominate in later years, would replace the longbow as the symbol of English medieval military superiority. And what a superiority it had been. From the beginning of the 1300s to the end of the 1400s, English arms were supreme in the British Isles and in France, Conflicts against the Scottish, and in particular against the French during the Hundred Years' War, sharpened the sword of England, and enabled her toughened kings, like Edward II, but above all Edward III, to cement not only the centralised power of the English crown, in comparison to its fragmenting French opponent, but also the status of England as a kingdom of tactical genius and innovation. The key to this success didn't rest upon the longbow alone, but this formidable weapon certainly rooted itself in tales of many key victories against the French. Cressy and Agincourt, anyone? Before long, the longbow became something more than a weapon, and it became a national symbol. We are confronted then with two major questions. Why did the English swap their longbows for muskets, and why did it take them so long to make this trade-off if the new musket was so much more effective? These questions must be answered by looking at the bare facts of the matter how effective each weapon was at doing damage to an opponent. In his book on the English supremacy at arms in the 14th and 15th centuries, historian Peter Reid gives us a particularly grim account of a battlefield in the mid-1300s when he writes, To be on the winning side certainly led to great profit, but to be the losers generally meant loss of life or horrific wounds. Axes, swords, glaives, halberds and poleaxes, could all sever limbs, cleave the skull, or behead a man. Arrows from the longbow and bolts from the crossbow could penetrate all but the very best plate armour. Indeed, arrows were known to penetrate the mail in a knight's thigh, go through the saddle, and kill the horse underneath. Primitive handguns, when they appeared, were quite capable of penetrating the best of armors. Many severely wounded men, or those who missed their footing, would simply fail to get up again because of the press of bodies from others on top of them. This is certainly a hellish scene, but Reed wasn't quite finished, as he noted what the aftermath would have looked like for those involved. At the end of a fight, a battlefield would be littered with the dead and the dying. The screams and groans of the wounded added to the frenzied shouts of those still fighting, but the cries of the wounded continued long after the battle was done. What happened to them? If discipline in the victorious army was good, the first to search the dead and the wounded would be heralds of both sides to identify fallen knights by their surcoats or badges. If the wounded man was a particularly prominent person, he might receive the last sacrament from a priest. Badly wounded men-at-arms, archers, crossbowmen and billmen were simply dispatched with neither ceremony nor mercy. Indeed, as no facilities existed to cope with them on the scale that might be needed after a pitched battle, and as resuscitation was so primitive and uncertain, probably the most merciful course was to dispatch them as swiftly as possible. All of these would be buried in communal burial pits, but not after, but not before they had been stripped. Yikes, it doesn't exactly sound like the nicest place to be, does it? I'm a big fan of that meme which shows what would have actually happened to that friend of yours who believed they had been born in the wrong era. Had they been a soldier of Edward III's army, they would certainly have had the opportunity to acquire fame, but a very grisly end was also a distinct possibility. Yet, to think back to what Peter Reed said about the penetrating power of the longbow, where it was capable of puncturing through the mail on the knight's thigh as well as the saddle before killing the horse, let's dwell on that a little bit. If one managed to achieve such a bullseye, they would have effectively doomed the knight on the battlefield. Without his horse and with such a leg injury, the top-heavy knight would have been easy prey to a hail of more arrows or a faster, more agile soldier. However, it would be wrong at the same time to assume that every longbow man and every longbow arrow fared so well against every knight's armour. In the case of chain mail, the concept of small rings designed to block pointed weapons had repeatedly been proved faulty. Yet, when an arrow fired from an English longbow was up against heavier armour, what chance did it have to inflict satisfactory damage, especially when compared to the arquebus or hackbutt, as the English called these rudimentary firearms? Well, let's find out thankfully for the sake of scholars and enthusiastic reenactors everywhere maintaining authenticity in research and representation was made much easier when Henry VIII's vessel Mary Rose which sank off Portsmouth in 1545 and brought down many longbows with it was discovered and its contents carefully extracted in 1982 by the Mary Rose Trust Thanks to this extensive work, we've been given an invaluable set of Yew longbows to work with, and many historians since have sought to measure the stopping power of these weapons with results that may surprise you. By applying a weight of 70 pounds draw on precise replicas made of these bows, we can accurately deduce the average stopping power of an archer in Henry VIII's service in the early to mid-16th century. With this baseline achieved, it was noted that the range of a longbow at this time was between 150 to 200 metres, which was an impressive distance and roughly akin to the distance which the arquebus and muskets could reach at the same period. When we look closer though, we're greeted with a surprising statistic. The arrows which were fired consistently failed to penetrate 3 millimetres of plate armour, which was the thickness of a good breastplate or helmet, and which represented the body parts which the longbow man was most likely to target. At ten metres longbows could not penetrate three millimetres of armour, and while they would certainly have winded their target and could even have knocked them down in some cases with the force of the impact, the knight would suffer little more than bruising in almost every case. If we reduce the armour to two millimetres then the story changes, but the arrows were still only capable of achieving minimal penetration, and not even then enough to inflict a serious wound. At one millimeter in thickness, the damage inflicted increases, as does the effective damage which could be done at a certain range. Overall though, this test demonstrated that longbows were most effective at shorter range and against less well-armoured targets. Obvious facts for sure, but ones which deserve repeating, if we're going to explain why the longbow is beginning to decline significantly in importance. Many disabling wounds and few fatalities, was how the test results were summarised. At the 1513 Battle of Flodden, heavily armoured Scottish pikemen were able to withstand a great deal of the English longbow fire, and even while predictably horrific wounds were inflicted, the kind of destruction inflicted by the weapon 100 years before at Agincourt was not repeated, nor would it ever be repeated in the same way, so long as the thickness and availability of armour continued to increase in response to the threat which the longbow posed. In comparison, Muskets dating from the 1570s were capable of consistently penetrating armour between 2 and 4 millimetres thick at a 100 metres, but it was at 50 metres or less that the damage inflicted by a musket ball became so horrific and significant. Yet, as with the longbow, we'd be wise not to generalise too much or present the question as one of straightforward superiority. It depended very much on the musket in question, as well as the skill of the archer, and since neither qualities were consistent, we shouldn't take too many great leaps forward in concluding the superiority of one over the other. On a given day in the first half of the 1500s, English longbowmen were more than capable of meeting the challenge posed by muskets. With a rate of fire of at least 10 arrows a minute, through the sheer weight of their projectiles, the English archer was greatly feared for the weight of fire he could pour, in comparison to the cumbersome, one shot per minute if you were lucky, firearms. Saying that, though, if it surprises you that Henry VIII was very much going against the grain and apparently the natural progress of technology by arguing against the obsolescence of the longbow, then you're not alone. Sir Charles Oman's vaunted tome, A History of the Art of War in the 16th century, criticised the English for holding on to the distinctly obsolescent longbow throughout the 1500s, and much emphasis within Oman's work was placed upon the transformative power of the musket, that war-winning weapon which the English shot themselves in the foot for not adopting sooner, pun obviously intended. As Dr. Gervase Phillips noted, though, the question of why one state adopted a weapon and another does not is never as simple as a case of backwardness or ignorance or a refusal to modernise. As Phillips notes, in a detailed paragraph which sets forth a great deal of what we're about to talk about, Military historians have been particularly prone to making such judgments, relying heavily on the concept of war-winning weapons as a causal factor in battlefield success. Less attention has been paid to the complex interplay of factors beyond technical performance that have governed the choices surrounding the adoption of particular weapons. A people's chosen tools of war can be a manifestation of economic, political, cultural and social circumstances. Circumstances that defy the simple logic of a new technology displacing the old one. The relationship between the longbow and gunpowder small arms provides an instructive case study in factors relating to technological choice. This is true for military historians in particular, but the case's implications for all those interested in the remarkable persistence with which past societies have clung to distinctly obsolescent tools even after more sophisticated technologies have become available. The complexity of the factors relating to the slow replacement of the bow by gunpowder small arms puts at issue any overarching theory of single-factor dominance. The transition was chaotic in nature, and incidental changes in surrounding social and political circumstances could have led to a quite different pattern in technology transfer. In other words, then, It's not so simple as the English waking up one day and accepting that muskets were better than longbows, but that of course is why we're here doing this episode. The English are an interesting case study precisely because of their attachment to the longbow. As far as I'm aware, there were no other powers in Europe that associated their sense of identity with the use and expertise in the longbow. Furthermore, the practice of fighting, and for that matter, drilling with the longbow, has been identified by one historian as a major contributing factor, towards the development of the later musket drills, which we will get into in future installments of this series. In short, the English were slow to adopt the musket, for reasons we're about to get into, but their refinement of longbow tactics and the drill to go along with them made a significant contribution to the practice of later gunpowder drills, which borrowed heavily from the earlier English example to make the best use out of firearms and to emphasise their strength as projectile weapons, early practitioners of musket volley fire looked to English longbowmen for inspiration. If it is generally accepted that in the second half of the 1500s, the musket began to provide greater advantages of stopping power and range in comparison with the longbow, especially as the smaller arquebuses were accompanied by the heavier muskets, then it must also be reiterated that longbows, continue to possess one key advantage, their unbeatable rate of fire. Again though, we could ask why it even mattered that more arrows were up in the air, as most of these arrows failed to penetrate the majority of the enemy's armour. The answer to this question presents us with the danger of going down something of another rabbit hole, so I'll try to be as concise as possible. Simply put, Not all English longbowmen expected to hit and kill or even wound their target. One of the major aims aside from these obviously sought after goals was to disrupt and eventually break the enemy's formation through the sheer volume of annoying projectiles that were landing around, upon them or within their ranks. The formation of pikes or swordsmen would feel so besieged and beleaguered under this torrent of arrows that they would consistently break ranks in an attempt to better defend their individual persons or attack the source of the arrows, an eventuality for which English arms were always well prepared. It's not hard to imagine the logic of this tactic. It was the equivalent to the later practice of bombarding the enemy formations with artillery. Even if these longbow shots were far less damaging, the psychological impact was the same. If one unit in an enemy's army could be consistently targeted and worn down to the point that it charged or broke apart, then piece by piece an enemy army could in such a way be picked apart. Of course the enemy was wise to such tactics and brought up its own archers, crossbowmen or arquebusiers to deal with this tactic, not to mention the fact that efforts were made to keep the army out of range of the longbowmen in the first place. Yet still, from at least the mid-13th century, this tactic was an English favourite, and its successful deployment even as late as the 1513 Battle of the Spurs against the French, demonstrated not just its staying power, but also the staying power of that tactic's critical component, the longbow. Such a tactic would have been impossible with muskets, unless of course the firing tactics of muskets were so sufficiently organised that a constant wall of lead would be consistently put down. Europe would have to wait until the turn of the 17th century for such a revolution in firearm tactics to come about, But for now, since a swapping of the bow for the musket meant a removal of this whole tactic from the English repertoire and a rethinking of their strategy on the battlefield, there was much more at stake than the mere swapping of one weapon for another. In addition, arquebuses could be effectively twinned with the longbow's strengths to graft greater stopping power and range onto English armies, and it wasn't just the English that maintained this tactic. The Venetians, interestingly enough, clung to the use of archers on their mediterranean warships well into the 1600s demonstrating that the longbow retained its admirers and its uses in 1590 a pamphlet war of sorts erupted in elizabethan england just as england waged war against the spanish and irish in two very different theaters some englishmen having served with the dutch in the low countries maintained that the so-called new style of pike and musket was vastly superior to the old ways of the bow and bill men, and chalked the incorrect reverence for the longbow at this late stage in the game down to the fact that England had been at peace from the late 1540s to the early 1580s, during which time her military professionalism and theorising had steeply declined. Rather than test out new ideas on the battlefield, old English codgers with their longbows were content to cling to the obsolete ideas of yore only to receive a short, sharp shock when they met the vaunted Spanish infantry in battle during the Dutch War of Independence. Much like the Thirty Years' War would do for European military thought and experimentation, the Eighty Years' War provided several opportunities for military theories to be tested and accepted over its long duration. In later episodes, we'll see how Maurice of Nassau, the Dutch leader, revolutionised the use of the musket when in the late 1590s he and his peers adopted a new means for using the musket in battle. The idea of fire by rank, where one musketeer would fire before engaging in the countermarch to the back of his unit's line, was one pioneered and heavily invested in by the Dutch, to be adopted and perfected by the French, Swedes and even the English in equal measure. That the Dutch were arguing about new model musket drills at the same time as the English were arguing about the use of the longbow can seem on paper like a striking gap in military advancement between the two states. However, one theme which will become clear during this mini-series is the idea that the military revolution reached every European power at different times and affected its military practices in different ways. Thus the musket and its smaller, less powerful cousin the Arquebus ...were hard sells to the English in the first half of the 1500s... ...because the English already had the rapid fire, cheaper longbow in circulation... ...not to mention the tactics to match it. In addition, it is sometimes said that King Henry VIII... ...feared giving firearms to the disaffected classes... ...and that he thus held back with bringing these weapons in on a wider scale. This idea does hold water, but it is also the case that the arrival of a weapon... ...as different as the musket and its spread throughout English society... ...required everyone to overcome old prejudices that they may have had about the weapon and its danger to traditional English values. In addition, new rulings would have to be issued instructing the English citizen when it was acceptable to brandish and fire such weapons. One such ruling in 1540 limited the use of firearms and chided musketeers for discharging their weapons... ...in cities, boroughs and towns and other unmet places without having any regard or respect where their pellets do fall whereby sundry his grace's officers and subjects, being in the highway, in the open street, or in their own houses, chambers, or gardens, have been put in great jeopardy of their lives. In a sense, during the 16th century, there was a clash between the old values and ideas of Englishness centred on the longbow, and the increasingly prevalent firearm within English society. Henry VIII's opposition to firearms was based on the idea that criminals would carry them and endanger the unsuspecting populace, while any increase in favour towards firearms would also reduce the favour shown towards the longbow. There was no sense in Henry's time that the longbow falling out of favour was somehow part of the natural order of things or of military progress, even while proponents of the new technology, especially later on in the 1500s, were far from silent. It would take a long time for the English to essentially forget everything they had learned about love and respect for the longbow, we cannot underestimate the impact which old legendary tales of victorious English kings accompanied by longbowmen had on the English psyche. These were tales, after all, which Henry VIII himself was raised on, and the tenacity, skill and bravery of the longbowman formed a great deal of these stories' most appealing parts. How much less heroic or impressive would King Henry V have seemed if he had simply shot his French foe to pieces with superior or equal numbers of muskets at Agincourt? It is easy to imagine longbow enthusiasts reminiscing for those better times of the early 1400s when there was no concept of firearms representing a replacement or challenge to the longbow if they appeared on the battlefield at all, that is. Back then, romanticists would muse, Englishmen were real men. They engaged in real wars and they made use of real weapons. By contrast, with the exception of Cromwell's riotous triumphs and the middle of the 1600s, England's military record was strikingly poor in the 17th century, up until its co-option of the Dutch ingredient in 1688. Such an attitude may seem like something out of the most ridiculous history book, but there is a good reason to suspect, in the estimations of the historian Roger B. Manning, that this attitude was deeply ingrained within English society, and that it didn't just result in a muted reception of the musket, but also in a delay of the modernisation of an English military bureaucracy such as that seen in France, Spain or the Netherlands during the 17th century. As Manning noted, the history and traditions of English feudal and chivalric society did not gel well with the new demands placed upon soldiers in the changing theatres of war. As new tactics were adopted and old practices abandoned, Englishmen, wherever they served, were determined to cling to the old ways as much as the old weapons. Manning noted this when he wrote The persistence of older values among swordsmen and gallants who disliked missile weapons and clung to the use of edged weapons such as the sword and the pike, and who engaged in individual displays of honour through duelling, challenges to individual combats on the battlefield, and other histrionics hampered the reception of the technological innovations associated with the military revolution and the pursuit of military and political objectives dictated by the needs of state and often substituted the pursuit of individual honour and glory. This was an assertion that social hierarchies remained more important than military hierarchies in positions of military command, and had the effect of delaying the professionalisation of the officer classes of the armies of the three kingdoms. That change in society we examined in the last episode, where the knights became more concerned with work in the administration rather than in the armies, where firearms replaced the traditional weapons which demanded a lifetime of training, and where professional armies replaced the feudal conscript levies, were all very gradual processes in English history, and there was no clear-cut moment when the state had an epiphany and just did away with the old measures in favour of the new. There also seemed to be a degree of blowback in England against the idea that aristocracy in battle no longer mattered, and that skill mattered more. This can surely be twinned with the overall English tardiness in accepting firearms, since muskets made everyone equal, whereas knights on horseback, revered longbows and even the lowly billmen implied a certain sense of aristocratic, societal hierarchy within even the smallest army that contained these elements. Indeed, it should be noted that the English clashed badly with their Dutch allies during the early phases of their intervention in the Eighty Years' War. A reason for this came from the English preference for social status over actual merit or skill or even experience, and this caused predictable friction with the Dutch, who were fighting for their lives and independence, not for concepts as vague or ill-defined as chivalry or honour. Even while the Dutch officer corps demonstrated a distinct number of unique skills when dealing with the challenges posed by the new design and fortifications, the Trace Italienne, for example, the English officers or commanders within their army maintained their distaste for anything other than charging in, lance brandished, while on horseback. That, it was said, was the honourable and determinedly English way of war and when accompanied by the longbow, there was no better way to make war. Indeed, during Henry VIII's wars, such ideas were not as seriously challenged as we might expect, so it's easy to understand why English commanders arrived in the Low Countries Ready to adopt tactics from 150 years before, many of those that arrived to aid the Dutch had been fed and watered on a diet of books and legends written at that time. If the lack of major wars in the English experience, in comparison to their European neighbours at least, hampered their development and progression into the world beyond the longbow, then the transition from one world to the other was by no means endured painlessly. As we alluded to earlier, the pamphlet war between proponents of the musket and the longbow was waged in the 1590s, but the surviving fragments of this struggle provide us with a fascinating window into what Englishmen at this time actually thought of the new and the old weaponry. In the mind of John Smith, whose book, Certain Discourses Concerning the Forms and Effects of Diverse Sorts of Weapons, yeah that's a mouthful, appeared in 1590, It was up to him to argue in favour of the longbow and defend it against the negative press it had recently attracted. Smith rallied against the praise of the musket and emphasised its dangers and shortcomings. While it was capable of firing up to 400 yards, this distance rarely brought about any successes. In addition, after a few shots, the weapon was often so hot that the powder could be ignited as soon as it was placed in the musket, causing all sorts of chaos for musketeers, as weapons exploded and sometimes shattered into small, lethal pieces, apparently at random. Smith was particularly drawn to the pro-musket side's argument that weather seriously hampered the longbowmen in their craft, whereas it was much easier to keep powder dry, Smith wrote. If in the time of any battle, great encounter or skirmish, The weather does happen to rain, hail or snow. The aforementioned weapons of fire can work no effect because the same does not only wet the power in their pans and touch holes but also does wet the match, put out or at least damp the fire or does mar the powder in their flasks and touch boxes whereas contrary wise, neither hail, rain nor snow can hinder the archers from shooting and working great effects with their arrows. While we could find several more sources from that era in support of the longbow, the central points would remain true. Longbows were effective at breaking up formations, they could inflict terrible wounds on the enemy, they could stop a cavalry charge, they were cheaper to maintain and easier to produce, and they were part and parcel of what made England's military prowess so renowned. Yet if all these aspects of the longbow are true, then it follows that a longbow was only as good as the man holding the bow. The arrow would only fly and penetrate as forcefully as the longbowman in question pulled back on his drawstring and he would only be capable of a sufficient draw distance if he was well used to the bows demanding training regimen. Thus we come to the inescapable fact which greets us throughout the 16th century. During the 1500s English proficiency with the longbow declined considerably because the quality of training declined also as the historian Thomas Esper recorded in his article examining the replacement of the longbow by firearms in the English army. Esper wrote that, archers as a whole were more poorly trained in the 16th century and especially at the end of it than they were in preceding centuries. Consequently, the efficiency of an army of bowmen was reduced. If a decline in training led to a reduction in the efficiency of the longbow, just at the time that firearms were beginning to become more prevalent and sophisticated, then the question remains. Why did training in the longbow decline in the 16th century, to the point that longbows were abandoned altogether by the English in 1595? This is what we now have to find out. The first element of this change in the English way of making war can be explained in the circumstances which greeted those longbowmen men when they attempted to take part in England's intervention in the Dutch War of Independence. Since the Eighty Years' War consisted mostly of sieges, it followed that weapons suitable for siege warfare would be preferred, and it quickly became apparent that bows were immensely difficult to fire adequately behind the parapet, particularly in comparison to firearms. The English introduction to the revolution in siege engineering, a theme which we will come to in future episodes, told them that bows were of little use in these scrapes, and that because of the bows' uselessness, Spanish and Dutchmen alike had long since adopted the musket for all their encounters. Yet it also had to be said that even before English intervention in the 80 Years' War, beginning in 1585 most notably, the preceding years had told a story of gradually declining pools of available archers, from 1 in 3 to 1 in 4 between 1522 to 1557. At the same time as this decline was occurring, English armies were making use of muskets within their bands of archers to bring the best of both worlds to bear against their enemies. It was impossible to insulate English armies completely from the creeping pervasiveness of the musket, even while they were slow to adopt it and replace the longbow with the musket completely. To present the second reason for this decline in the longbow and its replacement by the musket at the end of the 1500s, I want to return to a point I just made about the pool of archers being significantly reduced. The reason for this pool of professional, well-trained archers reducing was down to a fundamental change in English society. Put simply, the English swapped their favourite sport of archery for other pastimes and suffered a reduction in longbow efficiency as a result. Let's investigate this development in the final stage of our episode. In my time, my poor father was as diligent to teach me to shoot as to learn me any other thing, and so I think other men did their children. He taught me how to draw, how to lay my body and my bow, and not to draw from strength of the body. I had my bows bought me, according to my age and strength as I increased in them, so my bows were made bigger and bigger, for men shall never shoot well except they be brought up in it. But now we have taken up whoring in towns instead of shooting in fields. These were the words of Hugh Latimer, written in 1549, when reminiscing about the decay of English proficiency with the longbow. Latimer may be known more in English history for his martyrdom under Bloody Mary, But as a renowned man of the church, his memories of being raised in the longbow are a striking reminder of the prevalence of that weapon, not just with the soldier or on the battlefield. Archery, the use of the longbow, was a way of life. It was an English way of life, but without much effort being made to deliberately destroy it, this way of life was decaying. Such a decay did not necessarily mean that longbows became less important as weapons of war. What it did mean was that, As a pastime, practicing the longbow had been usurped by other, arguably more enjoyable and less taxing hobbies like playing dice, football or whoring in towns, as Latimer says. This was a change in English society we don't have all the time in the world to look into, but it plainly had a great role to play in changing how the English viewed their relationship with the bow, even if they didn't immediately seek to extend this deteriorating relationship to the battlefield. If Englishmen had less time to train with the longbow, and if the immediate danger brought on by the sense of constant warfare was subsiding now that the Hundred Years' War had long since passed, then it was inevitable that the English should become overall less proficient with the weapon which had once made them famous. When this occurred, it was logical that a replacement should be selected, even considering that replacement, the musket or arquebuses, clear disadvantages. When we consider that most armies created during the Elizabethan era were formed by conscripting the peasantry into an army and shipping it overseas, it is perhaps not surprising that the old expectations of longbow proficiency were completely lost on this untrained and unenthused peasant stock. These peasants hadn't been raised on a diet of longbow practice, they had been raised on a diet of idle and unlawful games, and thus as longbowmen, they were inherently less useful on the battlefield then men from the same class who carried muskets, who could at least be relied upon to fire a consistent weapon, well, reasonably consistent, a few times. Under-trained peasants suffered from a lack of practice and were mostly unable to pull back the bow in the same way as their ancestors had done a 100 or even 50 years before, by the end of the 1500s. Thus, the originally impressive stopping power of the longbow was lost and the weapon itself lost a great deal of its status or its usefulness on the battlefield. If these peasants would not train in their spare time, then it made sense to equip them with a weapon which would bypass these difficulties and get the job done on the day when it mattered. Of course this sensible deduction from the problems posed by chronically under-trained men were not wholly accepted or even acceptable as we've seen. In the words of one 1591 observation issued by Elizabeth's Privy Council, Her Majesty is informed that diverse unlawful games are daily used in most places of this realm and that thereby archery is greatly decayed and in a matter altogether laid aside, being an exercise not only of good recreation but otherwise of good use and defence to the realm and that in all ages in this land has been specially used and by laws and statutes necessarily provided for wherein, though, at this time, considering the great charge the subjects do sustain in furnishing themselves with muskets, arquebuses and other weapons both of defence and offence that are now more in use, it should seem a hard course to lay that burden on them which the law in this case does strictly impose. Nevertheless, Her Majesty, for very good considerations, thinks meet and accordingly has willed us to require you in her name forthwith to take special care that such Kinds of exercises, games, and pastimes are prohibited by law, namely bowls, dicing, carding, and such like, may be forthwith forbidden, but that instead thereof archery may be revived and practiced, and that kind of ancient weapon whereby our nation in times past has gotten so great honour may be kept in use. And such poor men whose stay of living with their whole families do chiefly depend thereon, as bowyers, fletchers, stringers, arrowhead makers, hunters, being many in number throughout the realm, may be maintained and set on work according to their vocations, and Her Majesty's said gracious intent and meaning thereby duly executed. To summarise, then, muskets and other firearms were less than superior to the stopping power, accuracy, and rate of fire of a well trained longbowman, such as had been seen during the glory days of that weapon, in the thirteenth, fourteenth, and Early 15th centuries. Archery was the national sport of England at that time, and because this inculcated a sense of respect and reverence for the weapon and for archery as a pastime, it all worked out remarkably well for England. If this favourite sport had not been replaced by another, if English society had not become distracted by less martial pastimes, and if England had been involved in more wars in the meantime, which made such consistent practice and proficiency essential, then it is entirely possible that England would not have given up the longbow for the musket, or at least wouldn't have done so when she did, as her European neighbours had done more than a century before. Indeed, of course, for this to have happened, England would have had to have continued on as a martial society, like a Spartan centre of longbow training, and it is questionable whether it would have been possible at any stage in English history to police the people to such an extent That the king controlled how the people spent their free time their sundays or their holidays still though the english example of the longbow is deeply fascinating and the very late adoption initially unsuccessfully of the musket and its associated lessons speaks to another key theme in this mini-series of ours namely that in every state where the military revolution spread it landed in each state influenced its military thinkers and made its practical influence felt on the battlefield very differently. The story of military technology and its advancement through early modern Europe was not one of a straightforward formula involving prowess, expertise and progress, but of idiosyncratic advancement and of the sometimes messy struggle between apparently obvious technological progressions hampered by equally insurmountable societal traditions and assumptions. What that mouthful means in short is that England, just like every other state in early modern Europe, brought its own baggage to the table and had to adapt and evolve according to the laws which this baggage set down. The process wasn't always pretty and it didn't always make sense, but that's why I spent so much time on this example here. As a window into warfare in early modern Europe, the English swapping of the longbow for the musket provides us with an important blueprint for the rest of Europe. There were no rules in the case of the military revolution, only exceptions, and in the next episode we're going to tackle these head on when we sink our teeth into exactly what the military revolution was, with renowned historian Geoffrey Parker as our guide. I hope you'll join me for that history friends, but until then my name is Zach and this has been the 30 Years War miniseries on 17th Century Warfare. Thanks for listening to this whopper episode, I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll be seeing you all soon.